Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Radio Motherboard. We have a special edition today. Uh, we are going to be talking with the researcher and archivist Adam Rothstein, who has created a mammoth speculative fiction slash work of uh, reporting based on the really big one, the looming subduction zone earthquake that is uh, on the verge of throwing the Pacific Northwest into disarray. Uh, Adam has written many, many, many words on this at this point. It's an intensely researched work. As he'll tell you, he's poured over numerous documents, both on the science side and the city planning side and the emergency response side, to get a picture of what will happen when this thing hits specifically Portland, Oregon, a massive 9.0 earthquake. Uh, Adam, thanks for joining us here. Thanks, Brian. Uh, glad to glad to talk with you. Um, yeah. So um, this, I guess, by way of introduction, the the sort of project came about mostly because I was interested in um, researching the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake because I live here, and uh, it was something that I'd heard about. And uh, you know, in my sort of natural curiosity, I. I wanted to dig more into it and be like, okay, what does that actually mean? It's going to be a big earthquake, but how big are we talking? What is, you know, what does that mean? How far away is it going to be? Those sorts of things. And then the the research just kind of grew from there as I got more and more into it. And um, this this has been a, a sort of the idea of of dealing with catastrophes and other emergency disaster events has kind of been a topic that I've been researching in various different guises, but it just kind of expanded naturally here, um, being that this is the place that I live and I may very well live through a Cascadia subduction zone quake. So I've been digging into it as much as I can. Right. And we should probably note that, uh, Last year, Catherine Schultz wrote a, a piece called The Really Big One in The New Yorker uh, that described this uh, event, or at least the the probability or the possibility that we're, we're due for it at this point. Um, and the article went viral. Uh, it was mostly kind of an, inter- an introduction uh, to, to this, this scenario that uh, in, in her and in some 
geologists and city planners' opinions we've been uh, overlooking to our detriment. So, it, so did that inspire this piece at all, or did you uh, already have an, an interest or a working knowledge of this this event at that point? I knew a little bit about the the earthquake itself, but definitely uh, her piece was like really really sparked a lot of interest. And I saw how many people, especially people I know who live here in Portland and in the Northwest, that were kind of taken aback by it. They really didn't know what to make of that. Um, and it, and she went really in-depth to the geology, and that and that stuff's great. And I, and I love um, kind of nerding out on that kind of stuff, that her, her story of how they discovered that the, these earthquakes have existed through history was just captivating to me. But then, and then the thing that I was noticing with, um, with people I know in the area is that nobody really knew what, what would happen next. Um, like, what's... What, what would become of the city after this earthquake? It sounds terrible, but would it be like a nuclear bomb went off? Would it just be total destruction? Or would certain things still remain? Would, you know, wh- what, what sorts of things would still be working? What sort of things wouldn't be working? And so I myself, you know, wanted to dig into that. And then that's kind of, you know, where a lot of these details really came out is, is me going through it and researching, well, how do we know what buildings might stand up and what buildings might fall down. Because there has to be research done on this. I, I, I knew that somebody had to be working on this problem. So I went out and looked through all the things I could find from various governments at um, the local level here in Portland, the state, all the way up to uh, the FEMA and DHS um, at the federal level to see who was doing research into this. Like, what did we? What do we know about... The bridges. What do we know about uh, the the train system? What do we know about the sewer and the electrical systems? And what can we say about that? Can we say anything definitively? Right. And well, it, it turns out that it, it you know, it, it, it seems like we can we can say, or at least we can speculate. We can make informed guesses. We can. There there is a lot that that we can do. So so. I know, and, I, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about, you know, why you decided to structure uh, the sort of the vector through which you share this research is, uh, for lack of a better term, it's a, it's a science fiction story. It's a speculative fiction story. It's a lot more intensely researched and more closely <laughs> uh, based point for point on fact, but it's a, it's a long really interesting, really fascinating uh, sci-fi story. Is that right? Yeah, I, I like to think of it as kind of maybe like a very hard sort of science fiction. You know, there, it, it's it's difficult. It's, it's The hardest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's incredibly difficult to say anything definitively about an event that everything we know about it is based on probability. And everything we know about the, the, the way that cities sort of hold together is based on probability. We can kind of say, oh, this bridge is getting too old, or this bridge is doing just fine as it ages. But it, we can't say definitively this is when things are going to fall apart. Otherwise, we wouldn't have accidents we wouldn't have disasters so um so so i think it sort of became this sort of weird kind of research fiction project because i wanted to have something that we could kind of tangibly deal with in some sort of respect so so maybe so you know when when you when you read this when i wrote this you know th- what I wrote is not going to happen exactly, but I like to think that this is a scenario that is 
just about as plausible as it could possibly be to give us an idea, to kind of give us a um, a, a um, starting point, so to speak, to kind of then, you know, think about what we're going to do what might happen to us and how we might respond. And a lot of the, the, a lot of the research that I uncovered is kind of like this. Um, the, the DHS, the uh, Oregon Department of, um, or the Office of Emergency Management, they, they do these scenario studies and they sort of define a scenario and they say, okay, given this set of initial conditions, what do we think is going to happen? And then they will run an exercise or they'll run a set of computer simulations to then try and get um, data from that scenario and say, okay, here's one way things could possibly turn out. And so I like to think I'm doing a similar sort of thing, but for a, um, a, a more kind of literary focus for a... Um, a more uh, uh, the reader's experience, basically, rather than a chart of data and um, and tables. Although you know, I I enjoy a good chart of data as much as anybody, I suppose, because I <laughs> have, I've certainly read a few in in the course of doing the research. Right, right. So, uh, where does this story begin then? Well, <clears throat> I have it. I have it begin the same way that a lot of these scenarios begin, which is they they figure a, a 9.0 uh, magnitude earthquake happening in the in the Pacific Ocean, somewhere off the coast, about fifty miles off the coast or so. Um, that seems to be kind of a good midpoint of a lot of the estimates. So the, it could be as much as a as a nine point three or a nine point five, or as low as an eight point three, maybe. So. The, this is judging from various subduction zone earthquakes that we've seen around the world and what they can tell from the, the geological records with uh, this particular fault line. But 9.0 is kind of like a good midpoint because it's, it's fairly intense. It's, not, it's more intense than we might see, but that gives people a good baseline to sort of judge the response, to be like, okay, we're, let's, let's prepare for a quake that is a little bit stronger than average rather than sort of shoot for the average and then potentially end up with something that's much stronger than we could imagine. So, so that's where we right. start. And in, um, I, I base it in Portland, but pretty much everything that happens in uh, my narrative happens in Portland. And I had to do that kind of to cut down to sort of create a narrative that was, that was sort of graspable because there is going to be so much that happens elsewhere. Like the, the experience on the coast of Oregon and the coast of Washington is going to be much, much worse than the situation in Portland. But I kind of wanted to focus on an urban area where the uh, majority of the population lives in Oregon um, to, to sort of get, right. it, it, get a narrative happening there. Right. It's going to be worse because that's the inundation zone, right? That's where the tsunami right. is going to come. Yeah, that's uh, right. I mean, just I mean of, that's just going to be the, as uh, in, in Japan in 2011, when there was the, that was, that was a, a subduction zone earthquake, not unlike one that might occur in, here on the Cascadia subduction zone. And, um, so there was the earthquake first, but then the re the tsunami was the real devastation, and that's very similar to what we might see here. Right, right. So we have like a 9.0 earthquake uh, thereabouts on the Cascadia subduction zone. Uh, we have a tsunami that wreaks havoc on the Washington, Oregon, uh, Northern California coast, but then it hits uh, Portland, a major metropolitan area. What happens next? 
Well, the interesting thing that I, one of the, well, I discovered a lot of interesting things, but one, one primarily thing that was kind of surprising to me is that the shaking won't be felt so strongly here in Portland, but it's going to go on for a long time. So these sorts of earthquakes are some of the longest. Um, so we're talking like five or six minutes of shaking rather than 20 to 30 seconds, which is much more typical for West Coast earthquakes, the kind like that uh, are normally seen in California. So while, there, there's not going to be a lot of building collapses. There's going to be a lot of damage that happens from that shaking that just happens continuously for five minutes. Um, so a lo- there won't be too many buildings that collapse, but there's going to be a lot of damage. And um, in, in Portland, another another big risk factor we have here is liquefaction, which is uh, what happens when um, uh, sort of silty uh, sand like soil along uh, rivers like we have here in Portland. When that gets shaken, it sort of loses its ability to hold weight and becomes more like a liquid, kind of turns to quicksand. So that's probably going to be a really big factor on what might happen here in Portland. So that that was kind of the, the, the basis for me going through and figuring out, well, what kind of damage will that result in? Um, is looking specifically at that liquefaction damage, the sort of things that are characteristically seen from liquefaction, and knowing that it's going to be the the length of shaking more than the intensity that's really going to do the damage here. Right, and and liquefaction that that can lead to you know like landslides or the ground sort of softening, and, and that can then lead to structural collapse. Or what are we looking at there? Yeah, I mean, with with liquefaction damage, you get a lot of different things. So you get you get this lateral spreading, is what they call it, where the soil kind of slides um, outward or downhill, and that can destroy roads. That can also knock over walls and and buildings. It can cause buildings to sink, their foundations can sink into the ground uh, where it, it looks, in, in photos that I've seen, it looks pretty much like the building is halfway in a lake. It just kind of tips in like it's sinking. Um, definitely landslide is another is another big potential that we have around here. There's some bluffs around here in Portland and that could very much cause a lot of damage. Um, another, another big thing with liquefaction that I discovered is uh, the fact that it has a tendency to cause pipes and utility lines to come to the surface. They, they almost float, and, and that action of the pipes coming up can snap the pipes or, or shatter them or pull them apart as the soil spreads out. So the, um, the sort of wreckage, the sort of devastation we might see from liquefaction in Portland is, is just kind of widespread utilities being down and malfunctioning, uh, whereas a lot of people's houses will seem to be just fine and be standing okay. Interesting. And, and what's the timeline for these things to happen? Like, how long will it take these pipes to surface or the ground to turn into silt or, you know, walls to come down? What is this? you know, five minutes or 10 minutes or what's... The- yeah, this is all This is all during the shaking. Um, it, it will, all during the shaking. Yeah, yeah, it'll kind of come up right away. And then, um, you know, kind of the shock, I think, will be after the five minutes, after the shaking's over and that sort of initial panic is is over, then we're going to have to look around us and, and say, okay, what's broken and what's still together? And there's going to be a lot of stuff like utility pipes that are under the ground and we don't really see that damage but it happens and there's leaks and all kinds of problems that will result from that yeah 
and 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 that is what's that is what's interesting. I think in in your scenario, uh, it's certainly deadly. Uh, there are scores of people that that will die. Uh, what? How many? How many people? You know, in this estimation, in this uh, speculation, do you see perishing? You know, it's this is such a uh, terribly sort of macabre thing to have to predict is how to predict how many people will die. But I think, I think judging from the 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 stats that I've read from the studies, the scenarios that have been played out already by um, various government agencies, I think, like in the in the Portland area, looking at like 150 dead and a few thousand wounded, I think that seems fairly likely, um, judging from the, the studies that have been done already, which, which is maybe not as many as you'd think when you think of like a, a terrible catastrophic earthquake. You'd sort of imagine, is, you know, earthquakes that happen across the world, sometimes we see tens of thousands dead. Um, and, and certainly across the region of the Pacific Northwest, there's going to be a, a lot of people suffering all kinds of um, injuries and, and calamities. But it, I don't think that, uh, given that the population in, in Oregon is mostly in, in this kind of central region around um, Interstate 5 going up and down uh, north-south, not on the coast where the shaking is going to be the strongest, I think a lot of people will sort of um, survive more than they might think that they will. And that was kind of surprising to me. Uh, I know a lot of people that I've talked to here in Portland they kind of assume that their houses are going to collapse. They assume that it's like, oh, I live in an old apartment building. It's going to collapse and I'm going to be dead in the first minute. There's going to, there's this sort of, um, you know, people, people want to throw their hands up to fate. But I think the interesting thing I discovered is that the real challenge is not going to be the number of people who kind of die right off. It's going to be how are we going to pick up and, and live safely and healthily uh, after all the utilities are destroyed, I think that's going to be the real challenge for most people. Yeah, and let's let's move into that 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 phase too. So we have the liquefaction. We have uh, we have the shake. We have some buildings down. We have fires. I imagine we might have some fires. Yeah, uh, at sure. this point. Yeah, one, one would probably conclude. Yes, I think so. Yes, some fires and and bridges down. We have some bridges down. We should maybe we should talk for a second about the bridges because it's it seems like uh, at least uh, a lot of the bridges will maybe not withstand the shaking, right? Well, um, you know, Bri- Bridgetown here probably won't fare so well. So the the big the big problem is that most of the bridges here in downtown Portland over the Willamette River. Uh, were constructed before the they even knew that the Cascadian subductions had existed. So they really aren't designed to take into account the sorts of forces that are going to happen during an earthquake. Um, and only one of the bridges, one of the surface street bridges downtown, the Burnside Bridge, has had any sort of seismic upgrading. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, the the freeway bridges have had a, a little bit of seismic upgrading as well, 
but basically this is what they call um, tier one sorts of upgrades, the, the very basic center to, to try and prevent them from completely collapsing. Um, that's the goal. So that means that thankfully people will, you know, hopefully not plummet off the bridges during the earthquake, um, but the bridges themselves may be completely unusable going forward from there. Um, you know, and the, the, the roadway may be cracked and damaged. The, um, the approaches, the ramps that you use to get on the bridges, those really haven't been upgraded at all. So it, it's kind of, it's kind of a big crapshoot that all these bridges will quite potentially be unusable, um, for any sorts of vehicles or even foot traffic right after the earthquake. There is, um, a little bit of good news. The, the good news is that they, are building new bridges. They, they just finished a, uh, a transit bridge, the Tillicum Crossing, um, and that bridge is constructed with full, um, sort of full marks for seismic protection. So the, the thought is that that bridge will kind of become the lifeline for the city uh, to get back and forth across the Willamette River after the earthquake. So uh, are any of these bridges, like, collapsing outright? Are we, do we lose full bridges, you know? in that sort of... I think that's quite possible. Yeah. Um, a, a, again, it, you know, trying to trying to speak speculatively here, um, it, I think it's quite possible that a lot of the older bridges, there's there's the steel bridge, for example, which is an elevating bridge um, that is over a century old, and that just wasn't constructed with any of these sorts of forces in mind. And that bridge also has, uh, for the elevating portion of it, the elevating drawbridge has these giant counterweights that hang from towers. Uh, they're just kind of free swinging up there. And, you know, once the earthquake starts shaking, those weights are going to go back and forth and the towers are just not designed to hold that sort of force. Right. And then so this becomes a major problem in coming days, right, when people are kind of stranded or relegated to moving around on foot. So uh, so what is, what is the situation like now uh, in terms of sort of the the social aspect like people have seen this shaking they've seen uh you know this disaster unfolding you know the the world has been turned upside down bridges freeways rendered unusable you know maybe entire hillsides have come crashing down didn't you say one of the biggest disasters the biggest uh fatalities will probably come from a landslide uh, coming down. That's definitely that's definitely possible. Yeah, there's um there's this big landslide risk area that's right over downtown, and if that were to give way in an earthquake, um, which again you know it's kind of anybody's guess, but that's certainly a potential, and that could be uh, you know quite devastating. I think. I think after the earthquake, it's going to be kind of mass confusion for a while. I think there's going to be so many emergencies. There's going to be fires starting from electrical shorts, from um, gas lines breaking, these sorts of things. Communications are going to be down. Um, the, the sort of various things that we rely upon to sort of tie our city together to keep things running and keep things flowing and deal with emergencies on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of those systems are going to be non-functional. So we're going to have to try and piece things together from what we have. And that's going to be very, very confusing for a lot of people. Um, the good, the good news, I think, is that um, Portland is, is planning for this. They're very well aware of it. One thing that I, I talk about 
at some length is the neighborhood emergency teams, the NETs. And um, th these are volunteers, people, just ordinary Portlanders who have been trained with some basics of first aid and kind of given a, a taste of what this might be like, the sorts of things that they're going to have to do on their own because the 911 system may not be functional. Um, there won't be enough fire trucks. There won't be enough emergency vehicles because they're going to be running all over the place doing all kinds of things. Um, so people are going to have to fend for themselves. And I think... I hope anyway that we'll see the sort of things that we have in a lot of cities where there's been um, disasters like hurricanes where people quickly kind of come to terms with this. It's sure it's, it's unnerving and nobody likes it, but people start to realize that there's nobody else around except for themselves and they're going to have to sort of pick things up on their own. Um, but it's going to be messy. There's no doubt about yeah. that. And, you know, I, I think that's a really important point and so much of your uh, piece is 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 about that, and I think that one of the biggest things that like our current obsession with apocalyptic fiction, uh, how it betrays us a little bit and lets us down, is it kind of is conditioning us to believe that there is this, you know, like on off switch, like society on disaster and then it's all gone to hell and there's nothing we can do about it right like so and that's yeah and I, I don't think that yeah. that's true you know and then the warlords take over and blah 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 but <laughs> but here as you describe here as has happened before in the past you know um you've probably read uh, rebecca solnit's great book a paradise built in hell which is all about sort of these post-disaster spaces that kind of open up and yeah people sort of get the message a little bit. It's messy, like you say, but they self-organize and they help each other out. And these nets are a great example of that. And I, I, I wonder, like, how common are organizations like that? Is this something that's, like, specific to Portland? Or is it, or do we have these sort of neighborhood uh, uh, emergency groups in, in other areas, too? Well, they're, they're really building up the net program here in Portland. They're really, they're really trying to give it a push. And I think... Um, after, you know, the, the sort of recent surge in interest in the earthquake, they've had a lot more volunteers. A lot of people are going in to try and get this training. And from what, uh, people involved with the net program told me is that they, they don't have enough spots. The, the spots are filling up and they're trying to get more trainings together because there's really a lot of interest. Um, so the NET program is based upon a, a national program. Uh, FEMA has this, this training material that they call it, um, uh, I'm gonna forget that I'm gonna space on the acronym. It's um, CERT. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, C E R T, um, and and that's the national program. So the net program is based on that. Um, and so there, so other cities do have it. Obviously, um, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, the kind of the the focus is very much about the earthquake. Whereas in other places, they kind of focus on all kinds of events, you know, snowstorms, hurricanes, just general power outages, any of those kinds of things. And they focus on that a little bit here in Portland with the training. They talk about various ways they might call out and utilize the nets um, for for smaller scale emergencies. We do have winter storms here in Portland, even though it's we don't get a lot of snow. Um, but definitely the focus is on the earthquake. Um, and I think I think what people will what, what I hope anyway is that in, a, in addition to these kind of more organized uh, groups that there that there are out there, 
there will be also people, you know, like we saw Occupy Sandy, which was kind of just completely ad hoc, didn't really have any groundwork, didn't have any training ahead of time, but people just came together to solve the problems that they saw happening around them. And I, I like to think that, that here in Portland, we would do the same thing. Yeah, and, and I think that it can't be stressed how drastic this the change will be uh for for a, a significant period of time we're probably going to be without power for a while without water for a while mm-hmm. even i mean you describe how, the difficulties in reestablishing some of these most basic services so what's going on with that how how long yeah. are we going to how, how do we get water you know after this you know after i mean there's going to be some stored certainly we're going to have some bottled water but the taps are going to be shut off in a lot of places or rendered undrinkable yeah I mean, it's kind of the, the the thing that kind of struck me is the fact that the the FEMA's kind of na- national advice for an emergency kit is to have 72 hours of water and food. Uh, but in in Portland, we're looking at probably being at least five days, where, so we're talking uh, m- much more than that without any sort of support. Um, and that's coming from a lot of different problems. Um, you know, the fact that the, the water system here, the, the d- distribution system is very old. There's a lot of old pipes and they're just going to be hundreds of shatters and breaks throughout the pipe system. Um, you know, we can see the same thing with natural gas. Uh, electricity, there's a little bit more resiliency there, but there could easily be some sorts of catastrophic failures of the distribution lines, the, the grid. Um, if the grid goes down and, and sort of takes out a large regional area to be able to route power through and deliver it, that's going to take some serious time. And then all of this is complicated by... Um, the fact that it's quite likely that we're going to have a serious gasoline shortage here in Portland because um, of the way that the infrastructure works. And I go into this in detail in, in the story, but, but basically we have one sort of intake of petroleum here for the entire state of Oregon, and it's very much at risk. So if, if something happens to that, if, if the, the hub that we get all of our gasoline and diesel fuel from, if something happens to that, then that's going to make all the rest of the reconstruction take so much longer. How can you send water crews out to fix water mains without, elect- without uh, gasoline? How can you um, send crews to reconstruct power distribution towers without gasoline? How can you deliver fresh water and food without gasoline. So we definitely see the potential here for a lot of cascading failures. And, um, you know, that, that I think was something that kind of really shocked me and, and about how vulnerable to that we are. But also it made me think about, well, what will we do? How will we, how will we get fresh water if, you know, say we do have a great earthquake kit and we have 72 hours of water, but what happens after those days are passed? What happens, you know, for the next few days? Um, and that's kind of where I, I imagine that scenario being fairly grim. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and what about what about cell phones? Are we going to maintain cell phone service, or cell towers going to topple over? Are we going to lose uh, our you know most uh, most used form of communication in the modern age? Well, I think the um, the thing that we always have seen in various. Um, sort of natural disasters is that the cell phone lines are always locked up to begin with, um, with everybody trying to 
call, um, you know, call, call their loved ones and figure out where they are and so forth. So there's definitely that sort of standard potential. Um, if the electricity goes down, then, um, you know, that's going to sort of compound things. A lot of the cell phone towers have emergency backups, uh, emergency generators, but most of those only last for about six or seven hours. So if we're talking like a large, uh, large-scale gasoline crisis, where is the fuel to run all those generators going to come from for all the cell phone towers? And then we have the problem, too, with, with all the buildings in the area shaking for five minutes. We're going to see antennas getting out of alignment. We're going to see antennas on buildings being destroyed if the buildings are damaged. And then um, there's also the, the, the landlines that back up the um, the landlines that back up that system, they're going to be destroyed as well by uh, liquefaction. That's going to be a problem, right? So we have we have about five days of citywide crisis, more or less, uh, at least in terms of this dramatic reorganization of how we have to sort of restructure our our date our routines our interactions our basic you know resource obtaining uh for the for the time being right and then what happens after after five days or so when does the recovery process begin in earnest and how does that happen well it's it's interesting that this is actually where the most i had to employ the most speculation i think in the kind of when we start looking a week or two weeks out because this is what's it's really unknown is how long the the reconstruction is going to take. How long is it going to take to clear landslides off roadways? Well, that's going to depend on how many landslides there are, how many bridges have fallen, how much rubble there is, how many trucks are available to move that rubble away, whether there's gasoline or diesel for those trucks. So that's really where the the sort of really big question marks start to happen. Um, I think... I think it seems likely that we're going to look at least a week of time before outside help is able to start getting into the Portland area in any sort of substantial quantity. Um, it's going to Portland, you know, is is a big city, but it's relatively isolated from the rest of the United States. There's a lot of a lot of space in between Portland and other cities. Um, uh, I mean, you have Seattle, which is only about three and a half hours away, but Seattle is going to have their own problems to deal with during the earthquake. So, um, you know, all this sort of help, it, it's going to come towards us from all over the country, but it's going to take some time to get here. And they're going to have to clear roads and clear rail lines um, and and figure out where the air airplane fuel is going to come from. Uh, in order to bring that help here. So I think, you know, a week or two before we start to see that coming through in earnest. Now, when you're, you know, researching and writing this as a resident of Portland, what 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 has this process sort of taught you about the city or what are you, what are your takeaways from it personally? How, I mean, was this an emotional process at all? Is it, you know, is it, does it kind of want to make you move at all? Or is it just a kind of a... <laughs> uh, it, it certainly makes me paranoid. <laughs> I, I've been sitting here at my desk kind of writing and then like I'll hear the, the heater come on or something like that and I'll be like, oh, is that the earthquake? Is it happening now? Because <laughs> you, you got to get the sense... You know, it's, it, you have to put things in perspective. So... You know, there, there's like 
a, a, you know, a third chance that a significant earthquake will happen in the next 50 years. And that's, that's not nothing. That seems like, you know, that's a pretty, you know, a, a third of a chance is not nothing in any way, shape, or form. But that's over 50 years. And, and so how do you sort of visualize that risk? How do you sort of think about that in terms of your everyday um, activities? You know, you don't want to leave your house without your earthquake kit, but you have 50 years over which this sort of thing may or may not happen. Right. Um, that's, that said, I've definitely got my earthquake kit into shape. Um, and that's something that has made me feel a little bit better in uh, being able to have that. And, and that's, that's been the, the really educational part for me is, is reading through this and, and thinking about these scenarios and saying, okay, well, what would I do if I was trapped on the other side of the river away from my house? What would I do if my house, I can't live in my house? Where would I go then? What would be my next step? Uh, you know, where would I stay? Who would I talk to? Who would I reach out to for help? Or who would I help if they need if they were in a situation right. um, like yeah. that? And, and and so it's a lot of this is great for that reason because you can kind of run through these things in your mind. And I feel a lot more um, I feel a lot more capable just from thinking about it, just from sort of considering these various possibilities and having them roll over in my head. Good, good. Yeah, and now everybody go out and read the piece. It's called After the Big One, and it's uh, a really, uh, it's, in my opinion, a must-read. So, yes, thanks for listening in, and uh, we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.